What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. Yavta Djurjevic here. Back to doing intros. I know I stopped for like, I don't know, 80 episodes. Anyway, had Brian Steele on today. Super interesting episode. I'm not going to give away too much, but essentially the, the name of the episode is called Plate of Spaghetti. And the reason it's called that is when I asked him, well, how would you describe your life? He said a plate of spaghetti. It's not really linear. It's just all over the place. And I thought that was super cool. But we covered a lot of cool topics. He was a geologist, then a high school teacher, then a partner at a, a consulting firm, then the president at that consulting firm, then left that to become a pastor, has enjoyed that world, took a two-month sabbatical, rediscovered life. His wife had the craziest health situation I've ever heard of. Uh, and now he's put out a book. And it's just been a super cool conversation. We delved into a lot of different topics. Actually, a lot of the conversation revolved around, you know, what does it mean to have identity uh, and to be grounded in that identity and and how there's a lack of that identity in, in our society today. So I think you'll really enjoy that. It's a great conversation. We had a good time. It's a little bit longer than our typical podcast, but I think it's well worth it. While you're at it, give us a five star on iTunes, that's always highly recommended and appreciate it. It helps us with the algorithms. I haven't really asked for those in a, in a long time, but I would really appreciate it if you could do that. Anyway, Brian Steele, Plate of Spaghetti is the name of the episode. Hope you guys enjoy. You excited? Ready for the episode? So much. I've actually been looking forward to this now. It's been a couple weeks. Well, that's awesome. Well, I mean, we're already recording, so I might as well go ahead and just intro you. Uh, Brian Steele, everyone. Brian, who who are you? What's the the 10,000-foot story of Brian Steele? 10,000 foot, it's not a straight path to to get to where I am. It's more like the plate of spaghetti. So, uh, you know, I started out thinking uh, my life was going to be academic. I I did a bachelor's and, and master's degree in geology. Uh, kind of an outdoors guy, and I love science, and so geology was uh, was the thing for me. Got to do some studying and uh, some graduate work down in South America and Patagonia, uh, but then there was something in the background that was really bothering me about just uh, just putting my my nose on rocks, and I thought I'd give teaching a try. Uh, I was a high school teacher for. <laughs> one year and really failed miserably at that. Uh, yeah, but it's a, it was a crash and burn. I found out so quick that high school teaching was not for me. You're and, telling me high school teaching is not fun? Oh my goodness. I was just eaten alive. Uh, you know, I had, I was a, a, a young teacher, didn't really know what I was doing. The kids could just smell the blood in the water. And so I was, mm. I was feasted on. Uh, all that teenage anxiety just comes back. <laughs> I still, to this day, all you know that that was twenty plus years ago. I'll get some of those students coming up to me, going, "Mr. Steele, so sorry, I was such a jerk to you," and you know. Uh, but it was good to. It was actually really good to fail at something. Um, I'm, I'm glad I did that. I learned. I think I learned how to fail. From there, though, from teaching, I went into geology consulting, um, was in engineering geology. So I would consult for road projects and, and uh, building engineering, everything from the mobile home to, you know, the $400 million nuclear uh, submarine uh, facility. And, and that was just uh, really uh, exciting. Uh, and, uh, and then got into the business side of that, became a partner in the company. Um, was, uh, God, life was going great. I learned marketing I learned sales, business development, uh, which was another really, uh, big turn in my life. So it went from being technical to a business orientation. I learned, I really enjoyed business and, uh, and loved the, the, the marketing part of it and the sales and, and all of that. Uh, and then I was, I was transitioning to becoming president of the company. We were just doing really well. I was six months into that transition when I got offered a job as a pastor at a church. And cause I'd been volunteering and doing youth ministry and I felt like I need to try that out. 
because if I don't, I'm going to kick myself. Never went to Bible college, never went to seminary, didn't have any of that. But uh, as I was volunteering in this youth ministry, something happened. It was um, uh, it was with high school and middle school students. And there was one of these, these youth group nights. I felt the deepest joy, really a deeper joy than I'd, I'd experienced in a long time. And that surprised me because the same week I closed a huge business deal. And I had so much more satisfaction from this youth group than I did from the business deal. And I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Right. <laughs> and so... I had to go back to my business partners. I had, I had um, three business partners. And I had to say, um, I really feel like I need to explore uh, becoming a pastor. And the, my business partners were so gracious and so kind. And they said, Brian, you have to do that. Uh, really, you've been pastoring us all along anyways. And uh, so... Then they gave me a long leash. It was they were very. It was so kind in how they did that. They let me keep the shares in the in the company. I could go try being a pastor, and they said, "Look, if it doesn't work out, just come back." Hmm. So going from academia to business to vocational ministry are three just really major, <laughs> major changes in my careers. And, I, and each time, I really felt like I had to start over at the very bottom, the very beginning. And so I've been a pastor for eight years now, and I absolutely love it. Um, I, I, I actually, <laughs> I wasn't that successful in youth ministry, you know, right? I started in my 40s, and, and uh, I don't know if I just got too old to throw a dodgeball anymore or, or, or what happened. But after a couple of years of youth ministry, I moved into um, doing um, working with adults in the church. I'm, I'm at a huge church. It's four or 5,000 people. I'm one of 15 pastors here. And, um, and I just really enjoy, uh, I enjoy what I do. And so that's how I got to where I am. Uh, it is a, it's a twisty turn. Uh, it was a twisty road to get here, but that's the big, that's kind of the big view of where I'm at right now. I was about to say, there's a lot to unpack there. All right. So oh, let's take a step back. Yeah. Geologists, you're just looking at rocks. Like that that's what I think when I hear geology. Yeah. But like how was that a fulfilling career path? Was that I mean Seriously. it just well so, yeah, I, I'm still a geologist. Like if you look yeah. at my office, got rocks everywhere. I got rocks all over my home, in my kitchen, in my bathroom, in my bedroom, outside, in the backyard. Uh, for me, geology, it's a narrative science. Mm. tells a story it, it tells a story when geologists look at a rock they don't see a rock they see a story they see they see eons and they see land uh formation and they see upheaval and they see cataclysm and and uh and i love it because everywhere i go i um I'm, I'm seeing stories. I'll see a volcano. I go, that's not just a volcano. There is a story behind there. And my brain, it works is, is so geared towards narrative and story that, and, it, and it's also scientific. So combining those two, just, it just hits the right chord for me. And uh, I love it. I want to unpack what you just said there because that's the first time anybody's ever said that and that just really resonated with me. Okay. Because I think my brain works the same exact way. Yeah. Your brain is geared towards narrative and story. I have never thought about that, but man, I think you just described my life. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I mean, it's a brilliant idea that I, I really, I got from Henry Cloud. Uh, he talks about, or no, I'm sorry, it's Joseph Grenny. Our brains are narrative and story machines. We can't take in data. Uh, Grenny talks about not being, you know, we take in data and instantly our brain turns that data into a story. Uh, so for example, you're driving on the freeway, the car cuts you off. Uh, and immediately your brain, in a matter of seconds, your brain generates a story that the person in front of you is a reckless idiot trying to kill you. Mm. Yep. <laughs> it's not just, oh, I 
uh, I just got cut off, but you generate a story. And uh, our whole lives are constantly generating stories. You know, I'm in, in the line at Costco and somebody clips my heel with a cart and immediately uh, the story that I create is something like, uh, look how stupid they are. <laughs> like, how dumb can you be? It, it, but, and usually it's not a generous story. Yeah. It's something that's pretty, <laughs> like, as opposed to the reality might be, you know, they might have just gotten a cancer diagnosis and they have a few things on their mind and they weren't paying attention to where that grocery cart was going. And um, so the stories that we tell ourselves um, actually determines, I think it determines our life, uh, whether it's a generous story, whether it's a negative story, whether it's a positive story, it, it determines the course of our life, I think. Mm. That's so interesting. Okay. So you're a geologist, you go into academia, you yeah. try being a high school teacher, and then you go into the ruthless cut, you know, cutthroat mm -hmm. business world. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, the cliche story is those who can't do teach. That's yeah. kind of what everybody always says or what, yeah. you know, just in general is, is yeah. just kind of that jerky attitude. Um, but you go from teaching to doing, or mm -hmm. I guess you were already doing and then going to teaching and doing or, or however yeah. you want to describe it. But what was that transition like for you? Uh, well, it was rough. Um, it, you know, our consulting, so it's engineering geology. So we're working with people in construction and I'm stepping out on construction sites and, uh, it was, uh, people immediately know I'm green mm -hmm. and it's really, it's, that's any industry that you you're in practically, you have to go through that green phase. You don't really know. <laughs> what's expected of you. You're, you're being thrown to the wolves. You're just figuring it out as you go along. Construction is particularly, I think, brutal as an industry to start green because there's so much pressure and the demands are so great. And if somebody is, is causing delays or doesn't know what they're doing, then you're just, uh, you're getting, you're getting beat up. And, and, you know, so I had to develop a thick skin um, very quickly. And, uh, and I had to, I had just had to put my time in, I had to hang in there. And I, you know, I think I would encourage people going through that. If you're new in an industry, you have to get through the green phase. Mm. Uh, you have to be able to, to take your lumps. You know, you might even get yelled at, or you might even just, I, it, it, it there's a variety of kind of experiences, but you have to go through it. If you don't, if you quit before that, you get through it, then, then you never really arrive. So it's natural, but it's, it's not easy. It's really uncomfortable. Uh, so that was my entrance into the, the business world, the consulting world, is just being on these job sites and, and just getting hollered at. Um, but eventually got comfortable and eventually started developing expertise. And then it reached a level where it's like, okay, I have the technical aspect of this under my belt. I'm comfortable with it now. Then I, I, I became a partner in the company and, uh, and learned business. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, what do you, what do you mean specifically when you say you learned business? I mean, how do you change, how do you trade value for value? Mm. How do you set up a relationship with people, uh, prospective clients and, and existing clients so that they are really satisfied with the value you're delivering? And, and it's more, for me, it was more than just make a sale. It was how do I contribute something to, uh, to what people are doing. How do I add value to what they're doing? And, um, it involved, I, man, I did so many cold calls, thousands and thousands <laughs> of cold calls. Okay. How did that go? Yeah. I'm super, as someone who's I, done thousands yeah. of cold calls myself, yeah. how did that go? I hated it at first. I hated it. I was so uncomfortable. And then, um, 
once I started seeing actually building relationships off of those cold calls, off the cold calls and actually crazy. Yep. Getting clients. And and for me, I think the reason why my business partner said I was pastoring was that I was interested more than just the business part, but uh, got to share lives, would share some of my personal life, would be interested in, in other people and be interested in their stories and developed relationships. And um, uh, Yavitsa, one of the great ironies was that when I became a pastor, the first funeral that I officiated was for my business partner who died tragically in a, uh, in a, a river boating accident. And at that uh, memorial service, were hundreds of people that I had developed relationships over the years in business. And those relationships were more meaningful than just the deal, than just trading services for money. And, um, and that was, that was pretty powerful. That memorial service, first of all, it was difficult because he was a very close friend but then it was it was satisfying in a way that I got to see the value of what a relationship can mean over the years. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, so hmm. I think that's almost this, and that's a whole nother topic, but it's like almost this lost art of going from zero to a relationship mm-hmm. with someone mm-hmm. in, in 2020 because we don't really – we don't really put ourselves out there in that way. Yeah. Why do you, you think know, that is? Like what what's behind what's the reluctance or what's the inability? Oh boy, you're about to have me go on a tangent. You can. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's actually kind of fitting. I just watched the social dilemma on Netflix. Mm. The the documentary with all these founders from all these different social media companies mm. who are like, social media is a devil. Mm. Um we I mean, we have no human to human interaction at all. Yeah. Um Everything is via text message or mm-hmm. a direct message or an email or, you know, there's very little, um, getting a phone call from somebody is almost insulting. Right. Like you're wasting and, my time. What are you doing? Wasting my time. Yeah. And yep. I've gone on this rant specifically, this key rant. And I, I, there's a reason I keep going on this rant over and over again. You're not that busy. Okay. As a human mm. being, you are not that busy. That's right. I'm not trying to hear it. Yeah. Um, if you spend eight hours working every single day and eight hours sleeping every single day, and I'm talking about working and sleeping mm. with zero interruption, you still have eight hours every mm-hmm. single day. No allocated time. Yeah. So don't give me this crap about being busy. That's right. Um, you just think you're busy because all these little devices that are monetizing you since they're mm. free, you are the product. That's right. Are tricking you into thinking you're busy. It's a tyranny of the urgent, right? Correct. Everything is important. Everything is urgent. And because everything is important and everything is urgent and everything's overwhelming, we stop actually caring about building any form of meaningful relationship with anybody in our life. It's so um, tragic. It's terrifying because I don't really know where this leads. Exactly. Because yeah. And that's wiring our brains, isn't it? Our brains are literally being wired by those devices away from human connection. I think the book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. Let me check. Mm. Uh, I think it's by Jonathan Haidt. But he, I haven't read the book, but I've listened to several interviews with him. Um, Yeah, The Coddling of the American Mind. I've listened to several interviews with him where he's talked about specifically teenagers, specifically around Mm. 2013, the rise in teenage depression and Mm. teenage suicide. Wow. Well, the reason, these kids are not, mentally there yet wow they're not supposed to be your yeah. prefrontal cortex is not no, done that's right it's, it's, 25. right your brain is literally growing yeah yeah and then even older people i see this with boomers in their 60s they don't understand how social media like they don't understand trolling mm. they don't like they take everything to heart and then they get their feelings hurt over and over again and it's like dude if if you keep getting your feelings hurt by social media Delete the damn Facebook. Yep. You know, so. Um, you know what I'm seeing that as? Um, go for it. Uh, I'm seeing that as people are granting others 
the right to take away your contentment. Mm, power over your life. Yep. I don't believe that, that contentment can be taken from you. You have to give it away. You have to grant somebody that power. And then with social media, we're granting thousands of people, actually anybody who posts on my, uh, on, the, on my feed, if I grant them the power to rob my, uh, uh, my contentment, then it's so tragic. And it's not even robbing. Actually, they're taking what's being given them. And uh, so there's a decision somewhere that we make that says, I'm going to allow somebody to have that level of power over my life. Well, I've, I'll give you an example since we're on this podcast. This And you and I talked about this last week when you and I spoke. This pod, podcast has been one of the most satisfying things mm. I've ever done in my life. Mm. It's just been incredible. And the feedback has been overwhelmingly yeah. positive. But there has been the negative responses Mm -hmm. and they're really ugly wow they're very few yeah they're less than one percent yeah they're really ugly and i'm sitting here like okay you got a problem with me come see me in the streets i live in nashville tennessee (laughs) here's my address (laughs) yeah you got a problem with me hey i go i go jogging sometimes twice a day every single day in midtown come see me we can have a face-to-face conversation but if you're going to accuse me of things Mm. via the internet I don't really have time for that interaction because you are a nobody. Literally, Mm. you're nobody. You you don't have, I don't don't see your picture. I don't see your real name. I don't see where you live. I have zero relationship Mm. with you. Who are you to even have the right to comment on anything that I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that, that took a long time to get to that point in my Mm -hmm. life, but. You know, I think a lot of people would be better served in their life if they just took the internet like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like it does get down to identity. If my identity isn't set, then it's basically a blank check for somebody else to come in and impose uh, on me uh, what they think of me, and then I'll believe it. Mm, yep. Why do you think that? Why do you think it's so hard for people? And I guess people have always had identity issues, but I, I feel like, particularly in the last seven or eight years, mm. and you as a pastor could probably have a better insight into this because you deal with people so regularly. But I do feel like there's this crumbling of of a core identity of human beings that you know every every feeling people have is malleable in some way because they don't even really know how they're supposed to feel relative to their own life experience. Yeah. I I think it goes back to the story in our head that our brains are are narrative. They're wired for narrative. And so there's two problems. One is if we don't even know that we're, we're, we're running our lives based on narrative, uh, then it'll just, the tape will just play and we don't want to even know that it's playing. It's like background music that we've stopped listening to and it, it recedes into the background. And I think when that happens, we're not active participants in our life. We're, we're passive. We're running, our lives are being run passively by whatever that story is. And if that story is something, I mean, it could be, you know, just for example, uh, when I was in eighth grade, <laughs> I was goofing around in a classroom and, and this girl turned around and, and looked at me and I can still see the contempt on her face and I can hear the contempt in her voice. And she said, a little maturity goes a long way. And I, and that, that got incorporated into a story in my mind that played for probably 30 years. That's so interesting. And it formed the narrative of my life. And the narrative of my life is, who do you think you are? You're nobody. Why do you think that you matter? It was a narrative of contempt and shame. And it wasn't until, like, Yavitsa, I don't think I became really a whole person until my late 30s, early 40s. I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't like who I was. There were times I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. There was that much shame and contempt 
that was operating. And I believe it was because of the story that was in my head. Hmm. I didn't even know it. Why? So I'm, I'm literally thinking about a, a similar experience I had same ex- except the girl was sitting behind me <laughs> almost same exact comment but my reaction was completely different mm. and i'm trying to think through like even immediately at that point my reaction was like who are you to comment on me like why mm. why does your opinion matter mm. um i wonder why different people and uh, obviously there's a million different things we could dive mm-hmm. into upbringing parents circumstances yeah. you know environment yada 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 um but y- you know you're talking about it almost as if it's this thing that's like tortured you for like three decades. Well, it and didn't I- feel like active torture because again, yeah. it receded into the background. It wasn't playing in the front of my mind. It was back of mind, yeah. and it was subtle. And it was, it, in fact, it would, was playing so long that I didn't even know it was there anymore. So it wasn't like this active living torture, but. It was a story that was influencing me subtly, but, but definitely so and strongly. So I want to, I want to pivot from that, but I want to, I want us to stay on the track with that same mindset of becoming a whole human, you know, mm-hmm. bringing that past mm-hmm. into the present. But you told me you took a two month sabbatical. This yeah. Year. Oh. You just kind of disconnected from the world. Tell <laughs> me about that. What happened? How did you feel afterwards? How did oh, you yeah. feel during it? What were some of the parameters? Where'd you go, et cetera? Yep. So it was a, um, you know, it, our, our church, our organization has a, uh, a policy every seven years that pastors are eligible for sabbatical. And so I had uh, uh, come up on my eighth year and uh, had two months of zero responsibilities with work. My work was completely covered. This was such a gift from, from my church, uh, from my employer. And so my, and my wife also got uh, that much time off. So uh, our, the theme of the sabbatical was delight. Mm. Two months of delight. And uh, we had a five-week road trip. We drove 5,300 miles covered nine states. Uh, my wife, Katie, and I, we love the backcountry. So we're in some wilderness areas of Wyoming and Utah, Colorado, that are just punch in the gut beautiful. Mm-hmm. So we're delighting in, in creation. Uh, I'm a person of faith, and my faith is uh, uh, usually, um, well, if I'm just being super honest, I'm, I'm probably more doing. Like I got to serve, I got to do this, and got to do this, and I got to do this, and that's what my faith leads me to. But in the sabbatical was delight in God, delight in His love, delight in creation, and then Katie and I delight in one another. And those two months were were maybe some of the uh, the best two months of my life. Uh, and just because I think it was middle school was the last time I had that kind of time on my hand where I don't have some, you know, my Google calendar isn't, isn't dictating every minute of my life. My email inbox isn't pinging all the time and, and just unplug. And so really what it ended up being was, was a mix of three things. One is like adventure and getting way in the back country and, and spending time and and very rugged and remote areas. And then the other part is just rest. We, you know, we got a cabin in Colorado uh, that somebody let us use. It's at 10,000 feet at the base of a glacier in St. Mary's with the spa. And it's like 10 days of just that kind of living is, is so good. And, uh, and then the other part of it was work on my soul. Uh, went to a retreat center in Southern California called the Soul Shepherding Institute. And the theme of the retreat was uh, spiritual and psychological health. And, um, and Bill and, and Christy Gaultier, they run this, this um, center. So it was do some digging into my, uh, into my personality, into my psychological health. 
uh, health and um, and really try to peel back a layer of the of the onion. And um, what I needed, Yavitsa, and when I st- usually when pastors go on sabbatical, <laughs> they're told you got to go because you're burnt out. And it's almost like a punishment, like get out of here because you're going to destroy your life and the lives of people you care about. So go on sabbatical. Well, I was in one of the healthiest places of my life when I began sabbatical. My marriage was strong. My professional life I felt was thriving, felt so strong in my community, felt physically healthy, felt good in my my relationship with God. So I got to, to begin sabbatical in a place of strength. And I needed that because the work that I was doing, I couldn't have done if I wasn't healthy. Sometimes you have to be healthy to do difficult work, especially when it comes to psychology and, and, and dealing with some of the things of your past. Interesting. So you go on a sabbatical. You Your Google Calendar doesn't dictate your life. Yeah. You know, what you said delight in God and delight in creation, which, you know, that that's also an, an interesting uh, theological discussion in the long run, but we, we can save that for another episode. But just, we, we talked about the lack of identity mm. in, in modern homo sapiens, mm-hmm. in the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. The lack of identity, the lack of clarity, the lack of groundedness. What do you think would happen to our society, it's a little thought experiment, if all 330 million of us were required to take a two-month sabbatical like that? Oh, my goodness. It would be such a game-changer. I think delight is a discipline. Mm. It uh, It requires a way of viewing the world. It's a lens. Delight is a lens that you look through. So if you're going to delight, you can't do that. If you're moving a million miles an hour, you have to slow down. Like if you're going to delight in a, in a meal and savor it, you're not wolfing it down because you're between meetings and you got to stop at Taco Bell and you got to get that chalupa down because your next meeting is coming up, right? If you're going to savor a meal, you're tasting every bite slowly. And I'm not saying do that with the chalupa, like get some, get some, yeah, get something better than the chalupa. <laughs> I'm not knocking Taco Bell, like, it, it, uh, but, but it's, I am okay, disgusting. all right, we'll knock Taco Bell, okay. Uh, but it's like eat good food and eat it slowly and pay attention to the flavor. When you're delighting in, uh, if you're taking a walk, you're walking slowly. You're engaging all of your senses. You're you're not just looking at the trees. You're coming up really close to the leaf and you're looking at the tiny veins. You're, uh, You're taking deep breaths in and you're smelling just the rich textures of like the earth or the cedar. Um, you're listening. And you're paying attention to the sounds. So you're hearing the, the water as it's hitting the rock. And, the, and, and you're, you're listening to the birds. And you're moving slowly. And it is a discipline to arrive to a place where you can delight. Um, I think that... Uh, and, and so, man, what would happen if people did that in the United States? rather than just microwave the food, rather than the, the knee-jerk reaction when you see something on a, on a social media post, rather than the, than the um, cram your calendar full so there's not one moment to breathe, rather than like the, the numb yourself on binge-watching Netflix. or It's the opposite of numbing. Actually, delight is the opposite of numbing. And, and listen, I've done my share of numbing, right? Uh, I've, I had to delete the backgammon game off my phone after 5,000 games, right? So I know how to numb, but delight is the opposite of numbing. And it is a so discipline. In, 
It's so interesting, the, the discipline aspect of it. I just think about every time that I've had my phone not working or, you know, even, like I said, going running mm-hmm. and just observing just life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember last time I was in Bosnia in my family's ancestral village hanging out there. So my phone's working, but it's not working really well because I've, um, you know, I'm obviously an American server. So I have mm. like, you know, not even like 2g internet. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, it, it's like I'm in 2007. Yeah. Um, I can call people, I can text people, but overall <laughs> I can't like mine just sit on my phone and scroll through Instagram. Sure. Um, and also you're out in the country out there in, in this, you know, small village where my family's lived for over 200 years. And wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking around the yard and, um, it's just quiet Mm. and, and, you know, you look, I look around and I'm like, man, I played in this yard when I was a kid and my dad played in this yard when he was a kid and his dad played there and his dad played there and his Mm. dad played. I mean, I'm I'm just kind of sitting there thinking to myself, there are seven generations of childhoods coming down to me that have experienced the beauty of figuring out the world as a kid in this very spot. Wow. And that, I remember that really took me aback and made me think about just life and the, the, the beauty that it, that is life and just the beauty of the world that I live in today, thankfully is very different than the world that, for example, my great grandfather lived in. Yep. Um, or his great grandfather, hmm. who also played that same exact spot. Wow! Um, so, well, that place has shaped you. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yep. And and if we're going back to narrative, our brains being run by narrative, you know, in a story, in in uh, in literature, setting is as much of a character as any of the characters. Place and setting is extremely important in, in narrative. And so that setting and that place has shaped you as a person. And if you think about if we're not spending part or at least some of our lives delighting in a setting that's not a two-dimensional screen, we're in trouble. So maybe our identity is because, I mean, just thinking about this, just, just real time, y'all, that's a, what, what does it mean if our setting is literally a two-dimensional screen and that's where we're living in that place, what does that do to our mind? What does that do to our, 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 uh, who we are? What does that do to our identity? If we were made to be three-dimensional, but we're living two-dimensionally in a screen. So I, I want to piggy, I really want to dig in a little bit on that, especially considering you're a pastor. So mm-hmm follow me where I'm going with this. A lot of things you'll see on social media right now, specifically from Christians um, is posts such as, and I'm saying this as a religious man, myself as a Christian, but posts like the world's abandoned Christ or the world's abandoned God Mm. in the last years, 20 years, 30 years. How's that turning out for you? And and I just want to raise my hand and be like, Mm -hmm. okay, so people who uh, don't share the same faith as you, you look like a complete, jerk when you post crap yes. like that because yep. the world is exponentially better mm. in the last 20, 30, 50, a hundred years than it is today. Just because your small section of your life experience in a very small subset of this giant planet is experiencing some sort of turmoil yeah. or your perception of turmoil does not mean the world's going to hell. Yeah. We've, we've limited we, we've cut down drastically poverty in the world. Oh my this is some yeah, of the most right. peaceful time in the <laughs> history. Right. It's, it's, you're so right. And, and we forget that, right? We, yeah, forget like we, we have no clue what we have. Even just you, like, let's just say, peaceful transfer of power. Right? That's is, huge. Is so huge. Even just like, that we have a currency that people agree has mutual value 
and that we can use that as a, as a medium of exchange is, is so huge. And just because it's normal doesn't mean that it's amazing or that it's not amazing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for, for seeing where I was going with it. It really <laughs> drives me. <laughs> yeah. And, and so what I'll say, what I'll say to that, uh, I don't think the world is getting uh, any worse or any darker. Uh, I think what is happening now, though, is um, it's being revealed for how dark it's always been. If anything is happening or anything is different now, like there's always been a shadow side. Mm -hmm. Always in history. And I'm saying there's always been a shadow side in each individual, myself included. Like the mm. monster is there. Yep. What's happening now, I think, is the, the monsters are being revealed. We're pulling the curtain back. And uh, it's being unveiled of what's always been there. And I would say not just for what's dark and, and, and twisted, but I would say the goodness of God, the goodness of his mercy and grace and love is also being revealed and pulled back. It's interesting what you said about the monster is being revealed. Another thing that drives me insane, specifically about culture in America. Americans, unfortunately, as a culture, we are so freaking arrogant to think that we don't have that evil inside mm. of us. It's always somebody else that's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. you are capable of doing the most horrendous things yes. that humans have ever done, just like any other human. It is your responsibility to your fellow man and to yourself to control that monster. Yep. That's exactly right. And that means confronting that monster. Yep. And naming it. It's, it's leaving the Shire, right? Yeah. You got to leave the Shire. You have to get out of that comfortable spot. You have to get out of, of the predictability and the stability, and you have to go to that dark place. And if you don't, that monster, will, it, it'll, it'll run you. Uh, and part of what, what allowed me to become whole was, was facing that and confronting that I am capable of great harm and great mm. evil. Uh, so part of my story in 2008, uh, I was uh, I was divorced, and I went into one of the darkest periods of my time, or of my life, and I had to live underneath a rock for it was a couple years of really um, dark time, and I had to face the fact I had to confront that I was proud. I thought I didn't need anybody. I thought it was so great. I thought I had it all together and. I can help people, but people don't need me. And, and so part of what I had to confront is, is pride, big time. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian guy. I thought, oh, yeah, I got it together. Well, guess what? I, I had neglected uh, and I had to own my part of the marriage failing. Not all of it. But the part that was mine, I had to own. And then, so my son was, the time of the divorce was, um, was 10 years old. And uh, he went through a very, very difficult time as a result of divorce. So part of me becoming a whole person was eventually owning my share of the pain that I caused my son. Mm. And being responsible for that. And there was a, I had a cup of coffee with him. And that coffee was seven or eight years in the, in the making. It was brewing for seven years. It took me that long to sit down with him and say, I know you went through hell. And I know I'm responsible for part of it. And this is how I failed you as a father. And this is how I failed as a husband. And I had to ask for forgiveness. And I had to um, uh, name and face the part of me that was capable of harm and capable of great, of great evil. Yeah, it's, it, again, we talked about this last week. It's St. George going and slaying the dragon. Yeah. 
Yeah. There is there is so much beautiful allegory and understanding of the human experience and all these ancient stories that keep repeating themselves over mm. and over. Again. Mm. And, you know, again, uh, challenging that monster within, challenging that, um, coming, coming to terms, in my opinion, coming to terms with the evil you're capable of is almost liberating because then it's not some, uh, it's not some boogeyman that's trying to sneak up on you. You know it's there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying any of this as if I've got my life figured out. Look, I'm 30 years old. (laughs) I'm nowhere near figured out. Um, but you know, I, I, I have thought about it over and over and over and over again, just thinking like, what evil am I capable of? Yeah. And where could it, where could it present itself? I think, I think you're, you're, you're totally right. Uh, the freedom is that you know it's there, you're aware, you're not living passively, and you can incorporate it into your story in a healthy way. Like it's when you're pretending that it's not there or you're pretending you're not capable of it, that's when it's going it, to, that's when that whatever that thing is, is in the driver's seat and it's driving you. You don't even know it, but, but when you name it and you're facing it and you understand that it's there, uh, you become the active participant in your life, and you're, and it's not living in fear or living in anxiety. Like, oh no, it's going to get me. It's it really is. I th- I'm glad you said that. It really is a freedom. And I became a whole person when I, when I dropped the pride and stopped pretending that I was capable of that, and when I. Really, it was joining humanity. I have three friends. Um, I call them the three legs of my stool because they supported me during my divorce. It was really the first time in my life when I reached out to somebody and said, I can't do this by myself. I need some help. Could you walk with me? And Brian and Jeff and Jack helped me become a whole person because. Uh, I realized that I don't have it all and that I need other people and, uh, and that it is, I have such a small, small piece of the, of the puzzle and my worldview is still so tiny that I need what other people know and I need to see what other people see. Cause without that, I'm, I'm, uh, it's such a, it's a small life without that. It's confined. I don't, I don't know. I quote him all the time on this show, but I don't know if you know who Michael Hyde is. Yeah. Yeah. He I, has a I, quote. I have his, his uh, full focus planner right in front of me right now. There you go. There you go. For, for Mike. Another, <laughs> another plug for the, fl- me too. Look at that. I've, I've, uh, I haven't, seen michael in a while but he's actually a, a deacon at at a uh, a church that i used to attend more often when i lived so on the other cool. side of town but um so i've talked to him on, on several occasions but the next time i see him i'm going to be like hey look man i need a cut of the full focus planner like i plugged <laughs> i plugged the super planner so much so on my good. show yeah. i need give me affiliate link do, do something that's it um yeah. but anyway he has a quote uh more often than not being brave means doing it scared mm. yeah and I thought it was interesting what you said, active participant in your life. Mm. Like that, but like you said earlier, like most of us are just living life passively, letting it pass us by. And then we look up at age 70 and we're like, damn, I wish I would have done things. I know. Yeah. It, it took me so, uh, it took me, well, it took me 30, almost 40 years to, to finally feel like I was a whole person and uh, and here's another part of my story that I think is important. I think I think also speaks to our culture that I actually really want people to hear. Uh, when I was in college and at UC Santa Barbara, I'm studying geology. I got recruited by a cult and experienced uh, uh, what's the the equivalent of a type of slavery mm. within this group. 
And they were so controlling and so manipulative. And it's a system of fear and guilt and shame. And I stopped being Brian. Mm. They, they literally formed me into another person. I, I shoved all of my family and friends out of my life. I was, I moved in with them. I was like, I was that annoying dude you hated who was preaching on a corner with a bullhorn yelling at people. I was the guy you hated who would knock on your door and think he would tell you something about Jesus that was going to have any kind of appeal. Mm. And uh, what was so destructive about that was this dynamic of control, this dynamic of fear and guilt and shame. And what really alarms me, Yavika, or Yavitsa, is that uh, uh, those same dynamics are being used today in what people would call cancel culture. Hmm. It's exactly the same dynamic. There's no so different. It's just being played on a different scale and maybe not as an extreme spectru- spectrum, but it is on the spectrum. And it really is, it's, uh, and, and I'm not even saying which side of the, you know, I think it's being used on both sides of the political spectrum, but we don't know how to operate that kind of power without destroying ourselves. We cannot yeah, it, cancel human beings out without destroying our own humanity. Yeah, cancel culture in itself is a whole episode that is... And and the the tactics you described and what you said about shunning your family and moving in with these cult mm. with these cultists and mm. you know where um yeah there <laughs> I wish we had more time to expand on that but oh, there's man. one more topic I want to w- make sure we get yeah. to before we got to go um, let me so just let, one, put, one quick little thing I have to because I thought about this it's also the same dynamic that is used in domestic violent. Uh, relationship gaslighting and things like that that yep if we want to be use exactly the same techniques as uh, as somebody who is is controlling through physical or sexual or financial or verbal domestic abuse of a spouse then um then go ahead and, and engage and jump into cancel culture because it's 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 exactly the same dynamic there's no difference Hmm. Interesting. I never, I never put those two together, but I can see where you, where the thought process is coming from for sure. It's about control. I, I spent yeah. after getting out of the cult, I spent about ten years studying cult dynamics and studying the psychology of it and the social, the sociology of it. I worked at a rehab center for cult victims and and, and uh, saw people from all over the world, from all flavors, political cults and, and social cults and business cults and religious cults. And, and it's all one and the same. There's no difference. They all are based on the same principles, the same mechanics. And, and our culture is starting to think it's okay. And it concerns me. Well, okay then. So... <laughs> 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 that guy, that guy again, now I need to, now I want to do an episode on cults. Oh <laughs> man, like, I'm there. I am there. Oh, that'll be that'll be fun. Um, okay, I, I do want to I do want to switch topics because I yeah. do feel like we need to get to this. Okay, your book and the story of how it came to be to me is the most like fascinating thing I've heard oh, in a man. long time. So so tell us tell us about the whole thing. Your wife, her diagnosis, uh, the, the oh, aftermath, okay. the book. Bam. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, I I came across a parable of Jesus about eight years ago. It's a parable of the hidden treasure. Uh, and it absolutely blew me away. It says that the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field that a man finds and in his joy goes and sells everything and buys the field. And I just got so captivated by these 30 words of Jesus. And I spent eight years studying that single parable. And, uh, and I started writing and then I started writing and writing and writing and, and, uh, and it's not just one book, but it's, it's, it's going to be a series of seven or eight books about this single, um, the single parable of Jesus. Uh, the one coming out this November is called the, the field guide or the kingdom field guide. It's about what is the kingdom? Why is it worth everything we have? 
Well, so publishing is very, very difficult. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to go the traditional route, you need to be a Michael Hyatt, right, with this existing platform, or you need to have a million followers. And, and it's practically impossible for a first-time author to, um, to get picked up by a traditional publishing house. Uh, the other option is if you have money, then you can self-publish. So <laughs> the problem was uh, I didn't have that kind of money. Uh, so here yeah, and, and for <laughs> folks who don't know, you're looking at like 40, 50 grand for a high quality book. That's what you're looking at. If you want to self-publish, it's expensive. Let's just, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll put it there. And if you want to do it right, I mean, you can print off a bunch of books, but if you want to do it right and really, uh, yeah. An editor, a, yeah, a cover designer, design, like, a platform, this and that. Yeah. Marketing, et cetera. You're looking at, you're looking yeah. at 50 grand. So here's how creative I think God is. And I, and I, I firmly believe that God is able to take the very worst circumstances and make incredible good come out of it. So here's how I got to publish my book. Uh, four years ago, uh, my wife uh, had a brain tumor. Uh, we're hiking along and uh, she fell down. We're on a trail and she fell down and, and she had a seizure and we didn't know what it was. She gets to the to the ER, and they find a walnut-sized tumor that's wrapped around her pituitary gland, her optical nerve, and uh, and this is a nightmare. It's the rug is pulled out from underneath uh, us, and our whole world is turned upside down. So she has a surgery at UW, uh, University of Washington. It's a nine-hour surgery. Her lid is literally taken off, and they're in there getting this tumor out. It's a big deal. She, um, After the surgery, she can't even walk. She has to relearn how to walk. Uh, and she's an athlete. You know, Growing up, she was an Olympic development soccer uh, player and was a serious athlete. And now she can't even walk, and so we're, we're in a nightmare. Uh, but she slowly starts getting better. She slowly starts healing. She goes from being able to just barely shuffle around the hospital wing to walking and then running. And a year later, she's practically fully recovered. And so we want to celebrate her recovery by doing this race called Ragnar. It's a 200-mile mm -hmm. relay-style race where it's a team of 12, and you hand off, you run all through the night. It's crazy. And this was the big celebration. In fact, the Ragnar organization heard about this lady who's recovering from brain tumor and is going to run the race. So they're doing a feature story on her. And we finished the race. It's a beautiful day. We're in the end of Whidbey Island in Washington State. It's just gorgeous. It's perfect. So we're on this beach. And life is good. We're celebrating. And all of a sudden, there's this guy as a neighbor. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's, he went off. He got, we don't know if he was drunk or crazy or what, but he pulled out this high-powered pellet rifle and started shooting at our team. And my wife got shot in the head. It hit a nickel-sized titanium plate that was from her brain surgery. Mm. And that little plate saved her life. Uh, if, you know, if, if I got shot in the head or any of us, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal because, you know, it would have plinked off her skull, it would have been sore or mad, but, but, but Katie has these gaps in her skull from her surgery and that could have, and it was literally a fraction of an inch from, from going through one of these gaps and would have killed her. Uh, but instead, it hits this titanium plate, and it gets embedded in the plate. And that little plate from her brain surgery saved her life. And so now she has to have another surgery. Uh, she has to get the plate removed and the pellet removed, and it's it's a it's another nightmare. And 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 she it's not just the physical re recovery from another surgery, but it's the emotional recovery of being shot and almost being killed. And so the, you know, he, he, the guy got six months in jail. We filed a civil lawsuit. We got a nice settlement out of that, which didn't feel like justice, but we, we do feel like it tipped the balance. 
that settlement is what's publishing this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and I mean, that's a very long way to get to how am I publishing the book, but, but I actually feel like God has that ability to orchestrate the most terrible circumstances to have incredible good come out of it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is just unbelievable. Um, just the odds of seriously those things happening. And, you know, I'm glad your wife's okay. Big time. I mean, I think that's the most important part of it yeah. all. Uh, but I'm also glad you get to publish your book. Cause I, I uh, think, it's, I, I think that, yeah. I think that's the beauty of 2020. You know, we, we ragged on social media and all this stuff happening, but the beauty of it is the other side of the coin is, you are not a slave to somebody deciding to publish your work anymore. That's exactly right. Yep. You can get your you can get your story out there. Yep. Yep. Um, what's it, the name of your book? It's called The Kingdom Field Guide. Uh, it's written as, you know, like if you want to learn about Costa Rica, you get the field guide to Costa Rica, but you don't just read the book about Costa Rica. You actually go there, right? You get mm-hmm. on location and you learn about it. And so... Uh, that's how Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He taught on location. It wasn't just from books or classrooms. So, so the premise of this book is, is get out to understand the kingdom. You have to get in the kingdom. And this is, it's a series of field trips. This mm. is how you learn. Uh, and it's experiential and it's, it's getting in places where you can see exactly what the rule and reign of God is and what does it mean and it's available and it's also real. And I would even go further. It's not just real, but it's really real. And mm. I think there's a difference. And if we're getting into the story in our head, going back to that, you know, before Katie had a brain tumor, I knew tumors were real, right? It's like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But as soon as she's got that wall, we called it the tumor, the bastard. literally that was the name of it we named the The tumor as soon as she got the bastard and she's got this walnut-sized tumor head now all of a sudden brain tumors are really real they are influencing every part of her life Hmm. every decision our finances we're waking up there's the bastard it's there the pain the medication the surgeries the insurance it's consuming our life and i believe that god's kingdom is really real If you're a person of faith and you only think it's real, it's not enough. It's not going to do it. It has to be really real because that's the only way the story in your head changes. Interesting. So when is this book coming out? November 7th. And I'm telling you, I feel like I've been nine months pregnant for eight years with this book. <laughs> is it going to be available yeah, it's, uh, everywhere? It's going to be on Amazon. Where it, it's going to be uh, probably go to Amazon. Uh, I'm in the process of setting up a website, uh, kingdomfieldguides.com. It'll be available there. And uh, this is all super new to me, super exciting. And uh, I'm just in, I'm incredibly thankful for how all of this rolled out. I'm excited for people to, I, I call it stubbing the toe on a treasure hidden in the field. It's like we go back and forth in our lives thousands of times. We're in autopilot and one day you're going to stub your toe and you're going to look down and there is a treasure box. It's always been there. It's hiding in plain sight. It's the kingdom of God. It's there uh-huh. right now. So we're, we're running up on time. We're actually over time, but I, I don't mind. I really enjoyed this conversation. Same. But, um, I know you've thought about this because we talked about it last time, but yeah. the question I always ask folks, knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know, you go back to 18-year-old you, yeah. what do you say? What's one piece of advice? Yep. I'm going to say, Brian, you're going to go through many nightmares in your life. And there's going to be times where you can't even look yourself in the mirror There's going to be times that are terrifying. There's going to be times that are really dark. There's going to be times that are filled with shame. And you're going to get through it. You're going to get to a place that you love your life. And you love who you are. 
and you're going to find joy in your life. And I'm not going to, I don't want him to avoid any of the mistakes he's made. I want him to make all of the mistakes. I don't want him to avoid any of the stuff he goes through. I want him to go through the cult. I want him to go through the divorce. I want him to go through the failure as a teacher. I want him to go through it all. I want him to be green on the job site and the construction guys yelling at him. I don't want him to avoid any of it. I want him to go through a brain surgery and his wife getting shot, as terrible as that was. I want him to go through it because it's part of who I am. It's part of my life that I love. I love it. That's awesome. That's so for folks, everybody listening doesn't know this, but when you and I first connected, you said, I love millennial manhood because of that question. <laughs> Seriously, it's and that question we haven't even got to the part that I think was most fascinating because I don't think it's what I'm asking the 18 year old, but what does the 18 year old want to talk tell me? I think that's a, such an important question because our being uh, persistent isn't just about making it through, but allowing the lessons that you've learned to persist to your present. Hmm. Yeah, that's another episode. That's another episode. <laughs> Man, I've really enjoyed this time with you, though, Yavitsa. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, thanks for reaching out and thanks for sharing. I loved it. I think it was incredibly worthwhile. And hopefully it can bring some hope or some thought or some self-evaluation to anyone listening. Um, you know, folks, as always, millennial-manhood.com, info at mmcip.co if you've got comments, questions, Constructive criticism, keyword constructive. Don't just complain, offer a solution. That's the requirement. You don't just get to whine. Um, Brian, I'm going to put all your information in the in the description of the episode. Sounds good. Um, and outside of that, thanks again for coming on. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 